Hi, everybody. Good evening, and welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. It is December 10th, 2018, and tonight I was asked to do a webinar on low frustration tolerance and delay of gratification, and these are very simple concepts, really, that we associate with maturity, with growing up, but I'll talk a little bit about the brain science behind it tonight, and then, of course, as always, talk about the parental relationship to these issues, how we can best support, facilitate growth in these these couple of areas. I will tell you this, and I'm going to mention this more than one time this evening, that from the earliest days that I was involved in wilderness therapy, I saw that these two ideas, these two concepts, these two character traits were improved in wilderness therapy in ways I had never seen in any other context. And, and research has, has borne that out. Research shows us that that delay of gratification, frustration, tolerance, that those, those character traits are improved in wilderness therapy inherently because of the challenge, because it's experiential, because of what's asked of the individual uh, students and clients out there. So with that preamble, let me get right into it. Let's first of all talk about what gratification delay or delay of gratification is. Delayed gratification or deferred gratification describes the process that the subject undergoes when the subject resists the temptation of an immediate reward and a preference for a later reward. I'm going to talk about some research a little bit later, but it's in essence being able to put off pleasure for the time being, being able to put the work in for it. Again, I think a lot of us associate that with, with immaturity and what we know about the, the, the pleasure-seeking part of the brain now, we know that that's inherently part of the adolescent brain. And to be clear, folks, the adolescent brain, uh, we, we, when we talk about an adolescent brain, we're talking about the brain between the ages of around 12 to 25. That's what's considered the adolescent brain. Generally, delayed gratification is associated with resisting a smaller but more immediate reward in order to receive a larger and more enduring reward later. A growing body of literature has linked the ability to delay gratification to a host of other outcomes including academic success, physical health, psychological self, and social competence. So as we talk about these two concepts tonight, it's just not in and of themselves that they're annoying or signs of maturity or growth, but they're linked, they're, they're predictors of other important aspects of somebody's mental and physical health. People who learn how to manage their need to be satisfied in the moment thrive more in their careers, relationships, health, and finances than people who give into it. Again, I think most of this is somewhat straightforward. Most of us can, can see this in our children. I'll tell you that this is one of the concepts we talk about at Evoke often. In fact, my son, who went through Evoke 12 years ago as a teenager, says to me that to this day, this is the most important thing that he learned and experienced while at Evoke. The idea of hard, easy versus easy, hard. That if we do the hard thing now, then the reward or the ease comes later. And if we do the easy thing now, then the difficulty and the challenge comes later. And oftentimes, th those, those later difficulties are exacerbated. I talk about this in parenting. I talk about this in my own parenting, that there's something I call a balloon payment in parenting, that if we don't 
invest the time and discipline as a parent, I know for myself, as a parent in earlier phases of parenting, of the process, that later on we're going to play, pay some kind of balloon payment, some kind of uh, greater difficulty later. And I can, I can definitely see that in, in all of my children as I parented them. There's this famous marshmallow test from Stanford University in the 1960s. It's been replicated many times where young children are given a, a marshmallow. And if they, wait two, if they wait 15 minutes, they're given two marshmallows later on. And what researchers observed was that the children that were able to wait for the second marshmallow without eating the first one scored higher on standardized tests, had better health, and were less likely to have behavior problems. I think that's pretty profound. It makes these issues, again, not tangential, not small. It makes, I think, some of your concerns that you've had about some of your children, it makes them fit in. It makes sense in the larger picture. I think there are addiction implications, and I'll talk about the brain science, like I said, right? That the, the, the thing that makes something addictive is that it takes a little amount of input or work, a little, little amount of input or work, and it comes with a huge, more immediate reward. Things that take a lot of work, things where the reward is about equal to the work, are much less addictive. Now, it's possible to get addicted to those things. I, I cite exercise as an example. Exercise doesn't come easy for anybody on the outset, or I guess for, for most people. And so it's, you can become addicted to it, but it's not addictive as addictive as, say, something like crack cocaine or, or heroin, where it's just a simple injection and it's almost an immediately uh, euphoric reward. And this is something important about the adolescent brain. I hope what this does is kind of normalize some of this at the same time, where a lot of times when you hear about brain science or the, the disease of addiction, part of what I think the benefit is, part of what I think therapists or programs are trying to offer to you is a perspective that's, that, that gives you more empathy. That empathy needn't rob you of your boundaries or your, your assertion of, of an intervention but it might come with less judgment, less anger, less frustration. See, it's not that the rules or the structure or the intervention that create the, the, the damage in an individual. Those things are all helpful. It is the anger, the judgment, the disdain, the frustration. Those kinds of judgments, that kind of emotional layering is what is difficult for the child or anybody for that matter to receive. So we know about the adolescent brain and its pleasure center. The adolescent brain is more responsive and excitable to rewards compared to adults with younger children and younger children. That's profound. The adolescent brain and its pleasure center is more responsive and excitable than not just adults, but than young children. So in other words, they're prone or wired for addiction. And if somebody uses substances, it requires more and more and more to be stimulated. A related concept is the concept of frustration tolerance. Frustration tolerance is the inability to tolerate unpleasant feelings or stressful situations. 
That's low frustration tolerance, I should say. It stems from the feeling that reality should be wished and that any frustration should be resolved quickly and easily. People with low frustration tolerance experience emotional disturbance when frustrations are not quickly resolved. And behaviors are often then directed towards avoiding, avoiding frustrations of frustrating events, which paradoxically leads to increased frustration and even greater mental stress. So it builds upon itself, much like anxiety. When we don't walk through our anxiety, we, we don't confront our anxiety, and when we don't lean into our fears, go through them, we tend to be prone more toward anxiety and, and stress disorders. Similarly with low frustration tolerance. When we um, don't go through it, don't experience it, don't have to sit in it, it tends to wire us with, with less and less tolerance with more and more impulsivity, with more and more of a desire or, or, or willingness to engage quick outs, escapes. Frustration tolerance is related to anxiety. And I think this is where, as we pull back a little bit, we can start to relate to our children. How do we tolerate anxiety? How do we sit with it? How do we tolerate the anxiety in our children? How do we manage what I call our empathic misery with our children, watching them suffer or struggle? I've said this many, many times in many broadcasts before. One of the advantages that we have as therapists, as a program over parents, is the distance to be able to watch a child, a client struggle without an overwhelming impulse to, to jump in and fix it. With my own children, I have the same vulnerability that all of you have in many cases. In many cases, you would have more patience, more capacity to deal with my child's discomfort than I would. Right? You'd have more clarity and, and objectivity. So as we start to think about their anxiety and their low frustration tolerance, we start to connect it to our own anxiety and our own empathic abilities to, to sit and to allow the struggle. I think about it in terms of the praise research, the, the, the book and the, the broadcast that I've done on the book um, Nurture Shock, where they talk about the idea of the growth mindset. If you want to learn more about it, you can look at the growth mindset broadcast that we have or the Nurture Shock broadcast on praise and, and the inverse power of praise. And what happens is that children that are praised, encouraged, rewarded for their efforts not for their successes, not for their accomplishments, not for their giftedness. The children that are, that are praised for their efforts tend to work at it longer. Children that are praised for their giftedness, for their talents, for their success, tend to give up quicker, tend to cheat more, and tend to seek easier tests or challenges for themselves. So again, we start to see our relationship to frustration tolerance. Can we sit with it? Can we encourage it? Over the years, one of the things that I've seen happen over and over again in wilderness therapy, when parents have come out to the field to visit their children in the, in the outdoors, the, the parents that have been most impressed over and over again are with their child's ability to stick with something that they would have quit 
before the program, specifically the Bodril fire. Parents are, are oftentimes impressed by a child's ability to, to rub the sticks together and to get, to get smoke and, and flames eventually. That, that is impressive. That's a cool thing to watch. But where I've really watched parents surprised and gush at their children is when the child tried it for an hour, time after time after time, and didn't give up at it. Because we know as parents innately, we know that that characteristic, that skill, that's the predictor of success. The willingness to stick with something frustrated, to keep working at it, to not give up. I I put this on here acceptance related. Acceptance related is that people with low frustration tolerance tend to struggle with accepting things the way that they are and, and working with what they have, right? I wish it wasn't this way. It should be different. Versus these are my circumstances. This is my challenge. Now what can I do to deal with it? And, and, and I think about it in terms of radical acceptance, a lot of, that we talk about and teach to parents. This detour that your family is on. Instead of thinking of it as, as a detour, if we think about it as exactly where you need to do, where you need to be, doing exactly what you need to be doing, your entire perspective changes. Your motivation changes, your mood changes. So learning to accept circumstances and challenges and then meet or lean into them versus wishing for what wasn't. Hoping for, wishing for, fantasizing about the should. Should not be this way. Should be in another place. Frustration tolerance is related to temperament. And temperament is one of those things that we see at birth. So some of it is wiring. There's at least a predisposition toward various levels of frustration tolerance. That can be then engaged in in the environment and lessened or, or improved in the environment. Mindfulness learning to be mindful, sit with discomfort, sit with anxiety, lean into it. Mindfulness is not about not feeling. It's about embracing what you are feeling, learning to pay attention to your feeling, to your anger. Your anger, your sadness, your hurt, your despair has as much to tell you, as much to teach you, maybe more, than does your joy and happiness. And so learning to be present and mindful, developing a practice of feeling everything that you feel. And of course, also thinking about that as a parent, learning to allow your children to feel everything. Some of you might know the famous graffiti artist Banksy. I may have said this last week. Banksy has a famous quote where he says, most parents, many parents, would do just about anything for their children except for allow their children to be who they are. In other words, in the simplest way put, that we want our children to feel happier, to feel a certain way about us. And and children can't endure that very well. They can endure pain and sadness and grief with support and connection and empathy, but it's very, very difficult for them to endure the idea, the concept that what they feel is not okay and needs to be gotten over. And then, of course, practice and experience, exposure, right? The, the, the most common interventions with anxiety or frustration tolerance is exposure therapy. In a way, 
wilderness therapy is is the ultimate exposure therapy. It's raw. There are a few escapes. The distractions that, even the healthy distractions, like reading an interesting book that's entertaining, even those are removed. And so the individual, the client, is invited into a practice of being present, of feeling, of going through it. And I've said this before, too. I had about 1,100 clients on my own caseload, my personal caseload, as, as a wilderness therapist. And I would say this only applies to somewhere around five, maybe 10 at the most. A very, very small percentage that I would, would deem close to it being just barely perceivable in terms of their success or growth. But even in those clients, almost every single one of them, the most difficult of the difficult clients, 10 out of 1,100, would say at some point, at the end or towards the end of the program, I did it. I didn't think I could, and I did it. And I feel good about what I accomplished. So what are the parenting issues to to grab onto related to frustration tolerance and and gratification delay? Like I said, is to develop an awareness about your own empathic misery. This requires you to do your own work. This requires you to deal with your own trauma. And you might say, Brad, I don't have trauma. I'm not talking about big T trauma. I'm talking about small T, everyday trauma. The more you sort out on and work on that, the more capacity you have, the more the ability you have to sit with others in discomfort, especially your children. Similarly, anxiety. Learning to deal with, sort through your own anxiety. It's oftentimes hard to parse out when working with a family about whose anxiety is really the biggest, the child or, or the parents. And your children give you really really good reasons to be anxious. So because of that, because they're getting in trouble, they're doing dangerous things, they're, they're far off track, so to speak, it requires you to do more and more work so that you can be there for them when you're present instead of them needing to be there for you in a way to take care of your anxiety. Now I put on here a sub, sub point of, of look at the, the praise research. I think one thing that anxious parents will do is try to infuse in their children verbally, orally, a sense of esteem, right? Like if you could make your child feel good about themselves. And of course, you all know, because you've been through this, you can't do that. But what you can do is listen, understand, empathize. In many ways, all of those things go contrary to the instinct to try to inject or infuse into the child a sense of them feeling good about themselves. A lot of times we project onto our children our own dilemmas, our own wounds, our own trauma, our own traits. Sometimes we project onto our children the traits of a spouse or an ex-spouse, a co-parent. So again, All of this speaks to getting more and more clear about your own trauma history, your own background, your own family of origin. The more, I I can't say this more clearly, the more you do that, the more capable you are as a parent in being there for your child. 
healing your childhood wounds, your own childhood wounds, so that you're not trying to correct them or prevent them in your children. Understand your needs. Most often, or I should say often, the parent doesn't consider their needs when they're considering the decision in their child's life. It's okay. It ought not to be taken out of the equation. The cool thing is if you consider your needs, really consider them, and they become part of the equation, your children, by, by, by the very dynamic of it, are required to consider your feelings, your needs in the process. So yes, obviously, one of the primary goals of, of being a parent is to figure out what does my child need? How can I support them? How do I intervene, interact with them in a way that's helpful to them? Absolutely no question about that. And it would be a grave mistake to throw out of the equation, what do you need? Do you need a vacation? Do you need to, do you need to sleep? Do you need to take a time out? Do you need to stop talking? And so forth and so on. And then learning to practice acceptance yourself, radical acceptance. This is not a detour, just, just for a, a short period of time, even if just an exercise tonight. Consider the possibility that you are not off track, that this is not a detour. And this is, this is exactly what you need and your family needs to learn what's important for you to learn. I've said this before as an example. For example... If I was a higher power, if I was your higher power, I would give you your children, your family, to teach you what you needed to learn. Right? That, that only makes sense that a higher power would do that for us. And then change from solving problems to resonating. It's, it's one, again, the, the hardest, most non-intuitive processes that we can think about. Not fixing, not solving, but rather resonating. Not pulling the child out of depression, but understanding and, and empathizing with the depression. Not trying to solve the child's anxiety, but understanding it, leaning into it. I tell this, this lighthearted story to kind of show how it's simple it can be at times. I was going with a family. I'd been asked by a family, and, and I hadn't seen this particular school or program ever, so I thought I would go along with them to... to to go with their, their son to this new program. This is 10 years ago. And we were on an airplane. It was um, mother, and then it was son, me, and then dad was on the other aisle. Son wanted to sit next to me. And so as we were getting ready to take off, the, the, the child started, 16, 17-year-old child, started expressing some anxiety about flying. And dad leaned over and mom leaned over, and they were telling him about the statistics in flying, telling him about how it would be safe and don't worry about it. And I looked at the kid and I said something like, it's probably a 50-50 chance that we're going to go down. And he relaxed his shoulders, laughed along with me, and sat back. Now, that's, that's a trivial, trite example. But it demonstrates that this the kind of dynamic that we impulsively get into when a child feels discomfort or anxiety. And how sometimes... Just letting it be okay. In this case, I used humor. But just letting it be what it is, is just what the doctor ordered. So change from solving. Solving is about your anxiety. Solving is about your need. This is not new information. This is, 
a, a cliche nowadays that we need to listen more and not fix it. What does wilderness do specifically? Well, first of all, it creates distance. It creates distance between the parent and the child. And I've said this before, so let me be clear. Nobody loves your child more than you. There's no contest there. But that doesn't mean that you always have the greatest clarity for your child. That's true of you, like I said earlier. It's true of me for my children. So the distance starts to create an ability to start seeing each other more clearly. Because oftentimes in quick moment-to-moment interactions, we lose ourselves. So the distance creates what we call in relational psychology, differentiation. A healthy balance between connection and separation, which another word for that is, is intimacy. Being enmeshed with a child is not loving too much. It's not. Being over-involved, over-identifying, it's not having too much love. It's being anxious. It's not having a self. It's not being clear. Real love has capacity and distance in it also. Wilderness is experiential. It's not talk therapy, although there's plenty of talking that happens out there. But so much of the richness of it is what happens in between the therapy sessions and the therapy visits. I've told this story before. 23 years ago, my first vacation as a wilderness therapist, I left. I was worried I'd never seen a model before because I was new to the field. And I left and there was nobody to cover for me. And I came back anxious to, to, to meet the staff. And I said, how did it go? And the staff said to me, I still remember, his name was Joe. The staff member, his name was Joe. Joe said to me, best week we've ever had. And I was immediately put in my place, humbled by it. Primitive living, nomadic living does the work for us. Folks, I want to tell you this. This is very clear. Even those programs that sell adventure therapy as a primary part of their work, they know that primitive living, nomadic therapy works better. I've heard them say it. They know it. NASA, I've shared this with you. NASA uses wilderness therapy, not not recreational wilderness therapy, wilderness therapy with challenge with team building, necessary for for comfort and survival, they use it to build camaraderie and trust amongst their teams. They've learned that recreation activities don't do the same. The reason that recreation and adventure therapy programs have have sprung up in the past several years is because they sell well to parents. So it's the struggle. It's the difficulty. We don't go out of our way to make it uncomfortable. It just is. You can take nothing for granted. Keeping warm, keeping dry, in the summertime, keeping cool, all of it takes effort, forethought, teamwork, problem solving, communication. The team and the staff, the the team that your child is with, their their peers, and the staff that, that work with your child, 
They all do a great job of empathizing, supporting without fixing. Again, they're, they're better positioned than most parents. It was true of my own son when he went to wellness therapy. I think the parallel process that happens for parents, the things that you guys are learning, being exposed to, practicing, something about wilderness therapy gets families, parents to engage more than residential treatment centers. You know, part of it is we put in that effort. These podcasts, these webinars, the parent support groups, I'll be in the Bay Area tomorrow night, so forth and so on. Right? All of these things, the parent workshops, the parent... Uh, intensives that we do, all of these things seem to work really, really well in getting parents to explore and facilitate the, the, them growing in their own process. There's a parallel process that happens for parents. Understanding that the delay of gratification, frustration tolerance, yes, it's absolutely a part of development. And the, the adolescent brain is ad, absolutely wired wired to have low frustration tolerance and low delay of gratification and substance abuse addictive behaviors exacerbate that they, they numb the brain it requires more and more and more stimulation for the individual to to experience pleasure or relief so what are the take-homes wilderness works of course what can we do to model after wilderness Learn, pay attention to what your child is working on, learning, what you're experiencing as a family. Try to replicate those concepts going forward because you can't live in wilderness therapy forever. Remembering, having compassion, self-compassion, that the proximity of a parent compromises naturally their ability to allow a child to struggle. We lose our own vision, being able to see the child clearly. We lose our self in the relationship because of our own trauma, trauma backgrounds and our over-identification with our child. And we're trying to fix things that are really broken in us. I don't want my child to feel like I'm unfair or I don't listen or I didn't love them enough because I felt some of those things in my past. Those are, those are key. Those are not, that's not psychobabble. That's absolutely what happens when we dig down just a little bit in family therapy. Take your time. Take a we'll see attitude. Don't pay so much attention to what they say they will or won't do, what they regret, what they apologize for. You, you take those things in lightly. Watch what they do day to day, week to week. Manage and treat your anxiety. I was working with a parent recently where I said, I said, I shared with your, your, your child that you have an anxiety disorder. And I, I said it very matter of fact because I'd worked with this family for a while. And I explored it more with the parents and I said, it's okay. You have anxiety. You, you have a desire to fix. Lean into it. Talk about it. Let your child know they're not the only project in the family. Take the pressure off of them. Make the treatment of your own anxiety, your own difficulties, make that one of the priorities in your family. And then, of course, attachment theory. The ability to see a child, to respond to their needs, to separate out my needs from their needs, to respond in non-anxious ways, all of that 
builds a foundation for healthy attachment, and healthy attachment is, it is the, what, what makes up resiliency, development of a healthy, healthy self, right? All of those things that, that mitigate trauma and stress in a child's life. If you want to learn more, listen to the broadcast, watch the broadcast on, on attachment, attachment issues. All right, I'm happy to take any live questions if any have come in. And remember, I'm going to be in the Bay Area tomorrow night, Corte Madera. So before we get to that, uh, if you're from the Bay Area, tomorrow night, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m., Corte Madera, if you have any questions, email melanie at evoketherapy.com. Looks like there are no current questions. I'll go to the end, and then I'll take any live questions that have come in. So you can submit any right now. We want all families, all parents, I should say, to attend six 12-step support groups, any combination of Al-Anon, Codependence Anonymous, or Families Anonymous. Just Google those and then look for meetings in your area. You can also go to nami.org, N-A-M-I.org, for free classes and resources in your area. All of these webinars are available on your podcast app on an iPhone or on an Android device. You can download the SoundCloud app. Um, or you can go straight to soundcloud.com on a computer. And in all cases, search Evoke Therapy Programs. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for inspirational stories, links, pictures, quotes. On Facebook, you can find us by searching Evoke Therapy Programs. Or you can go to the Evoke Family Foundation on Facebook to find out about the, an organization of alumni parents who've, who've got together to, to create a, a resource for people that can't afford therapy. The Evoke Therapy blog is a great resource for new content. My book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, is available in print, on Kindle, or on, on audio versions on Amazon.com. The next workshop will be January. We just finished one at Cascades, a wonderful success. We would like all current families to go to a workshop while their child is with us. So if you're new to the program, talk to your therapist leading up to it. Perhaps it can be scheduled in conjunction with a visit to your child if it's an appropriate timing, time frame, uh, according to the therapist. So the next one will be January 12th and 13th at our Entrada location. Contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com. If you want to go and do a deeper dive, if you want to go and do your own work, exactly what I'm talking about, build this foundation, come to one of our intensives. We have a Finding You for current or alumni parents coming up on January 9th through 13th. You can go to our website to find out more about finding you for our wilderness alumni and also for individuals. Or email intensives at evoketherapy.com. I will be in the Bay Area tomorrow night. That says 7 to 9. It should be 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Quarter Madera. It's at the, at the Courtyard Marriott at the Lakespur Landing. So again, email melanie at evoketherapy.com for more information or to RSVP. Uh, Dr. Michael Griffin, or excuse me, Michael Griffin will be in Los Angeles, in the Los Angeles area on January 6th. That's a Sunday. We do that for the LA families so they can avoid traffic. Four to five for a potluck and then five to seven for a parent meeting. And then I will be in New York City on Monday, January 14th, 7 to 9 p.m. Contact Melanie at evoketherapy.com for more information or to RSVP. You can look for our pursuit trips for families or, or young adults. All right, I'm happy to take any of the live questions that have come in. First question, my son just came back home from nine months of aftercare and after evoke. 
He has slipped back into old avoidance behaviors, and I'm feeling guilty for having him back with me while we get him organized again with a therapist, etc. How do I let this go and focus on healing? Tough love? It's a great question, and it's a big question. Uh, the fact that you're here tonight is good. You're not alone. Practice self-compassion. You know, beating yourself up isn't going to work. Know that regression is a part of, of, of the progress of, of, the, of the journey. Um, uh, without attending to the specifics of your, your specific decisions, ma- make sure that you're doing your work. I can't say this more emphatically, but go to Al-Anon, go to CODA, learn and develop a sensibility that we're talking about. What it means to be in a relationship with somebody who struggles, who self-sabotages, who self-medicates, who avoids. How, how, do I, how do I participate in a relationship in a healthy way? And it starts with you. So work on his stuff. So self-compassion. In the meantime, make sure that you're doing enough to fill your cup. To take care of yourself. To take care of your own anxiety, your own guilt, your own fears, and so forth. It's really, really critical. And, and this is a process. Versus reducing my own anxiety and helping him. Okay. Next question. My two, my two sons graduated from Evoke earlier this year, and it would be beneficial for them to participate in an alumni program. When will your next, next alumni program be held? I'm not sure. We don't have that on the calendar. I'll try to get on, on there soon. Probably it won't be till the summer because we tried to schedule it in the wintertime, and we're getting a, a little response, but we can't seem to find something during the typical academic year that fits. So it'll probably be in the, in the early summer that we schedule our first student alumni uh, finding you, which is at a cabin, at a, at a lodge in Park City, Utah. So it's not Willers. It's five days. I think alumni, I can't wait to do it with our first alumni students. Anybody 18 or older at the time of, of the, the, the finding you would be appropriate, even if they were 17 or younger when they were with us. I can't wait for it. Thanks for this topic and other parent rights. In my personal experience, my work, the work, continues long after my son has been out of the therapeutic program. Just today, my son and I had a conversation that would have not have, have occurred without him being in wilderness and aftercare, but mostly continuing to do my work, trauma therapy, al and so forth. Thank you for that. It's not about blame. It's not about culpability. It's about capacity. And I speak, I speak from experience. I, I go to therapy every week and half for 20 years straight. And I do a personal intensive every year, at least every year. It's why I have this to offer to you and to the clients. Another parent asked, how does one be in a relationship with one who has relapsed? That's a great question. Obviously, the relationship is going to look different. But... You, 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 you start off with a relationship with yourself. You establish healthy boundaries. You can establish what, what therapists call the immovable object. Where you don't compromise self. But I could be in a relationship with somebody who's self-sabotaging, who's self-harming. I can be there for them. I can be willing to respond should they be willing to engage me in any kind of helpful way or ask for help. That's being in a relationship with them. But if being in a relationship with them asks me, requires me to compromise core pieces of myself, it's not really a relationship anymore. 
Because self, in that story, in that equation, self is lost. And when self is lost, relationship is lost. So it's about being in a relationship with yourself first, by far, emphatically. And then you've set the, the groundwork. The first ingredient, I always say, in intimacy is having a healthy relationship with, your, with yourself. No question about it. I've temporarily separated, separated from my husband. My daughter says it's an un, unfair to my husband, perhaps her, that I haven't made a decision as to what I'm going to do. And I'm not at that point. Well, I'm not going to give you the, 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 the response that life isn't fair, but it's okay that she feels hurt. Unfair is a word... When, when the clients and the students use it with me, I, it, it just kind of passes through me. And what I really hear is, I'm sad, I'm frustrated, I'm upset. And they get to feel that way. And in another way of saying, you know, the, the old saying that people have that life is unfair. Another way of saying, saying, it is, saying it is, it's not fair. And I absolutely, clearly, emphatically honor your position that you need to do what you need to do in your own time. In, in another subject, in another way, I've said this. I said this some, to somebody earlier today. If my adult children said to me, or anybody for that matter, that to be in a relationship with my father is unhealthy and toxic, and I don't feel good being around him, if they said that to me, they would have my blessing to not be around me. I would say, if I'm that to you, don't be around me. And the reason I bring up that story is because to love somebody is to honor their journey. Now, I don't want my children to not be around me. I want to be safe for them. But the irony here is, in this example, is if I support my children in that way, then they're not going to not want to be around me because I'm letting them be themselves and feel what they feel. So back to you. You get to have you. It's not easy. It's not fun. doesn't meet all of my needs. But you get to do you. And it's important that you find a therapist that can support your journey. And in my experience, people that are allowed to be themselves, allowed to have their own journey, and especially if they're supported by their spouse or ex-spouse, they want to be around them more. And my experience also tells me that if you honor your journey, you'll be a better mother or father to your child. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely confident of that. It's critical. So I'm sorry it's hard for her and for you, but that's, that's what I believe. Somebody said, come to the Southeast soon, please. If you set up an event, I'd be happy to be there. We don't have a lot of clients in the Southeast, but if you, I just went out there to, to Birmingham, Alabama last month. If you set up an event with, with a group of people, I'd be happy to travel out there. Church, synagogue, uh, PTA, I, I spoke at a school, at a middle school last month. So, so happy to do that. Would love to go all over the country. All right. One parent asked, do most parents listen to the advice to attend a 12-step program? It's been helpful to me and changed our entire family dynamic learning about codependency. I don't know. I, my experience is about half. Half listen to the, 
the advice and the suggestion, the request? I don't know those numbers for sure. We just ask that you try it six times. And if you get nothing out of it, I always say this, if you get nothing out of it, at least you know what it's like to walk into a group of strangers and to be asked to some extent to share about what's going on in your family, yourself, and you can have more empathy for your child and what's being asked of them. All right. Thank you for the the investment and the comments. I'm going to be doing a... um, going to be talking about identity, identity development this week. Not, not necessarily sexual identity or, or gender identity, but more about identity in general, although I'll talk about that <clears throat> and touch on that a little bit, but about the stage that adolescents and young adults go through around identity and how we can engage that in a way that's helpful and supportive and, and not detrimental. So that'll be Wednesday, this Wednesday, <clears throat> excuse me, this Wednesday, December 12th. 2018, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Look forward to that. See the rest of you, or those of you that are going to be in the Bay Area. See you tomorrow night at 6:30. Take care. Good night. Bye bye.